Lamentations and the Book of Glory or the Book of Exaltation. And all of this book, all of the gospel was written to show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So that by seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we might believe in Jesus. Well, last week with the, the seventh sign, the sign of the raising of Lazarus, we concluded the book of signs. But John gives us a saddle, uh, to borrow that illustration from another pastor who used it. He gives us a saddle between the two books of the book of signs and the, the book of exaltation. The book of exaltation doesn't actually start until John 13. So we've got all of John 12 that prepares us for, for that. Um, the uh, there are things in this saddle, in this middle section, that are putting a bow on the, on the book of signs. There are other things that are preparing us for the things that we're going to see in the book of exaltation. John chapter 12 isn't really an intermission. It's not a pause in the action at all. Rather, it's a transition. Again, putting an emphatic point on the book of signs and preparing our hearts for the glory of Jesus in the book of exaltation. There are several parts of this transition, this saddle. And the first is a story that we come to this morning. The story of Mary anointing Jesus with expensive perfume. Follow along as I read uh, John eleven fifty five through 12, 11. John eleven fifty five 55 through 12, 11. Now the Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast after all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not on account of him, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This transitional story here in John chapter 12 confronts us with the supreme value of Jesus' worth. Jesus is worthy all of all of our worship, all of our adoration, 
All of the signs which we have been looking at point us forward to Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. And if we rightly follow these signs, these signs point us to Jesus. They lead us to Jesus. And so we bow and we worship Jesus for his surpassing worth. This text leads us to dedicate ourselves to Jesus in humility. So let's dig into this text together. It begins with uh, time moving forward to the time to the, the the third feast of the Passover here in the Gospel of John. One more time, uh, verses uh, 55, 1155 through 12:2. Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem. Before the Passover to purify themselves, they're looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He will not come to the feast after all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let him know so that they might arrest him. All of this is the background for Jesus coming in to this feast. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. So we're on the Saturday before the Passover. Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So you remember in that seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus, that raising of Lazarus took place somewhere between the Feast of Dedication, which we call Hanukkah, which happens in December, right? Hanukkah is December. And the Feast of the Passover, which we celebrate today as Easter. So sometime between what we celebrate as Christmas and Easter, somewhere in those four months was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, now Passover is here. Fast forward. Now we're at the Passover. This is the, the third Passover that John mentioned. So it's at least the end of the second year, at most the end of the third year of Jesus's ministry. And Jerusalem is just a buzz. It's full of people who have gone down to prepare for the Passover, to purify themselves for the Passover. And Jesus is famous. Unless you're the Pharisees, in which case he's infamous. Everyone wants to meet this man who raised Lazarus from the dead. But the religious leaders have published this news. If anyone comes across Jesus, let us know because we're going to arrest him. So there's all of this anticipation in the air. Everything is a buzz. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen. Meanwhile, a couple miles away, in the calm of Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus decide to hold a feast in Jesus' honor. Matthew and Mark also record this feast for us. And those Gospels tell us that this feast was held in the home of a man named Simon, who had been a leper. We don't know anything else about this Simon who had been a leper. Presumably, Jesus had healed this Simon. Also, presumably, he had some money because he was able to host a feast like this in Jesus' honor. So we've got this guy, Simon, who's hosting this feast in his home. We've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus who are apparently helping to host this feast. And Jesus is here as the guest of honor. You notice that in verse number 1, we read Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You read that and you're like, no kidding. Why did John say that? We know Jesus raised him from the dead. We just got done with this five-part sermon series about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Why is he repeating this information? 
Why is he telling all of this when he just told the story in so much detail? And you're right, it is a little bit odd, but the reason why is because of verse number 9. Look down at verse number 9. They came not on account of him also, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This is the exact same phrase, the exact same words, word for word, of what we see in verse number one. Now, we've seen John do this kind of thing before. He'll use a repeated phrase at the beginning and at the end of a story, or the beginning and the end of a larger section of the gospel. And these are kind of like verbal bookmarks to help us see where the beginning of a story is and where the ending of a story is. So John isn't just needlessly repeating himself. Uh, some people have even suggested that this is just like a sloppy editor who's throwing this story together and he forgot that he just wrote about Lazarus. And so he said, Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. No, it's nothing like that. John is actually a very careful author and very carefully telling us this story and this one particular story of, of Mary who pours out this this. Um, perfume for, for Jesus. So this is the story. And, and notice we have Mary and we have Martha and we have Lazarus. And I, I just think this is so neat because in this little section of these three people's lives, we have an amazing picture of what happens when Jesus touches your life. Look at this. Martha is here serving. Martha served Lazarus is reclining with Jesus, enjoying fellowship with Jesus. And then we have Mary, who is worshiping Jesus in humble and loving devotion. Doesn't that just beautifully summarize the Christian life? When Jesus touches your life and saves you, you're drawn to him in worship and devotion. You serve him with your life, and you're elevated to a place of fellowship. With, in fact, not only do you have fellowship with him, you have new life just like Lazarus was given life. I don't know if John intended to draw our attention to this service and fellowship and worship, but it wouldn't surprise me. John is a very gifted author like that, and in either way, in the kind providence of God, in the inspiration of God, we have this picture of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this snapshot of the Christian life, the life that Jesus has touched. But the focus of the story is not on Martha's uh, service. It's not on Lazarus's fellowship with Jesus. What John wants us to see in this story is the worth of Jesus. To worship someone is to ascribe worth to them, to recognize them as worthy of worship. It is to attribute to them the worship the worth that they deserve. Notice again what verse number three says. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is the account of a woman who ascribes incredible worth to Jesus, the Messiah. Now this story is very well known. In fact, I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's, it's told in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 both tell this story in their own way. Let me read for you quickly the story as it's told in Mark. I'm in Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to read from verses 3 to 9. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, 
A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. Now it's interesting, there's a similar story told in the gospel of Luke, in, in Luke chapter 7. But that seems to be a different event. It apparently happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. It also happened up north in Galilee, in Jesus' hometown area, and not down south in, in Jerusalem. It too took place in the home of a man named Simon. But that Simon was a Pharisee. This Simon had been a leper. Also, the woman in the story in Luke was a prostitute, not the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus. It's very possible that Mary heard the story of this other occasion that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry and took inspiration from it. That would make a lot of sense. Mary clearly sees Jesus as of inestimable worth. She sees him as valuable above all else. And she heard of this way that another woman had ascribed to Jesus this worth that he was due. And so she imitates that example. Mary and Mar uh, Matthew and Mark both tell us that when Mary poured out this ointment on Jesus, they, she poured it out on his head. John here mentions that it was poured out on Jesus' feet. If you imagine the situation, you have what the text says is a pound of this nard. Now, in our measurements, that would be about 12 ounces. Uh, if you're like me, you can't really picture what, a tw what 12 ounces is, uh, 12 ounces, 16 ounces. Well, if you've seen my coffee cup, my coffee cup is 12 ounces. It's a good amount of coffee, right? Imagine... 12 ounces of perfume being poured out on Jesus from, from head to toe. Now, just thinking about this uh, in the illustration of my coffee cup, if you're at all like me, then at least once in your life you have accidentally spilled coffee on yourself, right? And you know that it doesn't take very much coffee spilled to get all over you from, from top to bottom. And if you're a really committed coffee drinker like me, you might actually consider this to be a fortuitous inconvenience. After all, it's not every day that you can put on coffee cologne. <laughs> but in this story, it's not the smell of coffee. This is expect expensive ointment made from pure nard. John is just piling the adjectives on one another to emphasize the outlandishness of this circumstance. It is 12 ounces of pure, priceless perfume that is made from nard. Nard, what's nard? Nard is a plant that grows in India. Apparently it has sap that's very, very good smelling. That's, that's what this is. So the point is that what Mary does is lavish. It is extravagant. 
and it is fragrant. I just consider this act alone. She has poured out what is perhaps the most valuable thing that she has ever owned in her life, and she's just poured it out all over Jesus. We're going to learn in a few minutes that the estimated value of this perfume is 300 denarii, which basically means that it is a year's wage. Just imagine that. What do you earn in a year? 50000 80 Take that money and use it to buy, all of it to buy perfume, the most expensive perfume that you can find. Some people have actually suggested that this, this, she has this because it is supposed to be her wedding dowry. At, at any rate, the point is, this is priceless. And she pours it out all over Jesus. Now think about what this says about the way that Mary values Jesus. What kind of worth is Mary ascribing to Jesus that she is willing to literally pour out the most priceless treasure that she has all over him? Notice at this point, this is going to be the point of the conflict in, in just a few minutes. This is just pure, gratuitous splurging. Ladies, this is what you're not allowed to do at the mall. There is no greater end in this game. There is no bigger point to this. this. This isn't like the early Christians who sold all of their land and gave it to the church. True, that, that was also sacrificial giving to Jesus, but that at least served a practical end of providing goods for the other Christians. Now, this, to borrow the words of Judas, this is just waste. The perfume is just gone. It's gone for an existential moment of communicated adoration. What does she have to show for this? What does Jesus have to show for this? Probably took him a week to get it all washed off. How is Mary any better off when she wakes up on Sunday morning having just dumped out this most priceless treasure that she has? Is she better off on Sunday? For Mary, Jesus is worth everything. But the story doesn't end here. Not only does she pour out her perfume all over Jesus, she then wipes his feet with her hair. Now, Mary is not the prostitute from Luke chapter 7. The prostitute from Luke chapter 7 is the lowest of the lows. She is the, the sinner of sinners. She is the downtrodden of society. She has no cultural standing. She has no societal worth. It does not offend our consciences nearly as much to see such a societal outcast as she wiping Jesus with her hair. But Mary? Mary is a close friend of Jesus. She is part of what seemed to be a rather wealthy family. Probably this family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus has been a kind of benefactor for Jesus and his ministry. After all, Jesus didn't work for the three years that he was preaching. Someone was helping him. Someone was financing his ministry. Mary has societal standing. She has cultural influence. And Mary, in front of everyone at this feast, lets down her hair 
and washes Jesus' feet with her locks. For Mary, Jesus is worth everything, and she is utterly unconcerned with her own self-image. Now this is the picture of humble worship. No focus on self whatsoever. There's no thought of personal pride. There's not a thought of what people think. There's no embarrassment. There's only humble worship. As you consider this picture in those terms, how does this picture seem to you? Do you see Mary's act as admirable? Weird? Stupid? Perhaps Jesus' evaluation of Mary catches you off guard. Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Maybe you think, beautiful? Is that what beauty looks like to you? Is it beautiful to gratuitously waste the most valuable thing that you own in a moment just to communicate to Jesus your devotion and your love in worship? Or does that seem weird to you? Mary's act was impossible to hide. This 12-ounce bottle of perfume being poured out on Jesus had a powerful effect on everybody in that house. The smell has gone out, and now everybody is watching. Notice verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Even as Judas was about to betray Jesus, Judas's words betray his own heart. Consider three things that Judas's words reveal about his heart. I'm going to take, at first, we're just going to take Judas's words at face value. I know there's clearly another motive going on, but before we consider that duplicity, let's just take his words at face value. We're going to observe three things that Judas's words betray about his heart. And we're going to consider these in the form of mathematical equations. But they're simple mathematical equations. They're, you remember uh, doing those greater than, less than problems when you were in grade school? Where you got one dime is greater than eight pennies? How does that work? One, one, is, one is smaller than eight. I've been working on this with my daughter's money. There's eight of them. How is that less than one? Consider the first equation. The first equation that shows us something about Judas's heart. The first equation is this. Utility is greater than worship. Utility is greater than worship. Doing something, accomplishing something, is more important and more valuable than worship. Mary is here offering humble, devoted worship to Jesus through a priceless sacrifice and through her selfless act. And yet, Judas proposes selling this perfume to feed the poor. And that sounds like a good thing, right? Again, ignoring his duplicity, let's just take his words at face value. It's a good thing to help the poor, isn't it? 
Jesus, in fact, has been helping the poor for two or three years now. Judas just wants to continue the trend. Let's keep the good thing going. He sees more value in getting something done. He sees more value in benevolence and charity than he sees in worship. One pastor, Kent Hughes, he wrote, To the heart that has never met God, worship seems a most impractical, wasteful pursuit. But what about the heart of Mary? What, does, what is worship worth for Mary? What does worship accomplish for Mary? Well, if the most important th- part of the human existence is our physical life, then it certainly is important and it is good to help provide for the physical needs of others, right? I mean, if this life is what there is and if our physical needs are as important as they are, then then I can't think of anything more important than helping people who are down and out. Helping people, giving them money, giving them food, whatever. That is a really, it it would even be a, a very good thing to dedicate your life to helping preserve the lives of others. But what if physical life isn't the point? You may remember the first question, the famous first question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Similarly, the Heidelberg Catechism asks, What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. God created us to glorify and worship Him. We belong body and soul to Him. It is both our duty and our delight to worship God, to ascribe to God the value that is due His name. To put it very simply, worship changes you. Engaging in worship, both body and soul, forms your soul. I asked a minute ago, is Mary any better off waking up on Sunday morning having dumped all, over her, all of her perfume all over Jesus in worship? And the answer is absolutely yes. Her worship of Jesus has formed her soul to glorify God and love him more than if she hadn't done that. Let me give you another example, and a rather famous one. Remember Abraham? God gave Abraham a son. After decades of promises and hope and faith, Abraham finally received that son. And then God asked Abraham to offer his son back to God as a burnt sacrifice. And sometimes we ask, why? Why would God do this? Why bother? God knew what he was going to do. God knew that he wasn't going to actually let him slay his son. Why bother going through this whole thing? If God already knew what Abraham was going to do, why does God need to do this? Why does God need to put Abraham through this test? I've heard, you know, the the answer, well, God needs to see Abraham carry out the action. It's not real until God sees that Abraham does it. But think about that from the other side. Think about it from Abraham's perspective. I don't think the point is as much that God needed to see, but rather that Abraham needed to pass through the experience. 
regardless of what outcome God knew was going to happen, Abraham would only come through that experience trusting God by having gone through the experience. Abraham only trusted God because he was put in a circumstance where he had to trust God. Circumstances change us. Worship changes us. When we worship God, God changes us. There is value for our souls in the existential moment of ascribing to God his worth, the worth that he is due, that he is due precisely because that worship forms our souls. God does something to change our hearts, to grow our love for him, our trust of him, our value of him, our humility before him. Was it worth it for Mary to waste that perfume on Jesus in that moment? Was Mary's gratuitous sacrifice worth it? Yes, because humble worship formed her soul in a way that donating to a thousand rescue missions never would have accomplished. Judas is terribly wrong in his first equation. Utility is not more valuable than worship. It is not better to give away all that you have and deliver your body to be burned than to love Jesus in devoted worship. 1 Corinthians 13. Worship is more valuable than works of benevolence. But Judas, Judas makes a second evaluation. And this one, while a little bit more subtle, it's even more sinister than the first one. And the, the second, for Judas, the poor are worth more than Jesus. The poor are worth more than Jesus. Judas considers it to be a waste. That's the word that he uses, a waste to pour out this priceless gift on Jesus because the poor would benefit more from that gift. That's what he says. You see, the judgment of whether or not an act like Mary's is a waste is not merely a judgment of the action in and of itself, but it's a judgment of the action performed on a certain person. Just imagine for a moment, let me make it a little bit more clear. Imagine for a moment that you met a world-famous leader for whom you have great respect. But any leader that you want, pick religious, political, whatever. Someone world-famous that you have great respect for, and you're eating lunch with him. And you notice, as you're eating lunch, he's admiring a watch that you own, a watch that you're wearing, it was once owned by your grandfather, a handmade Swiss watch. In that moment that you noticed that, do you not think that you would be at least a little tempted to take it off and offer it to him? You wouldn't dream of giving that watch to just a random stranger in the supermarket, no matter how much that random stranger complimented you on it. But a world-class dignity? Maybe. You see my point. Whether or not a gift is a waste has everything to do with how much you esteem the one you are gifting. And the fact that Judas considers Mary's sacrifice to be a waste indicates not only that he values utility and doing something in usefulness, 
more than he values worship, it also indicates that he values the poor more than he values Jesus. Or at least he values the money that would be given to the poor more than he values Jesus. But of course, with Judas, things are not as they seem. The third equation of Judas is that self-gain is greater than sacrifice. This is what's really going on in his heart. Aside from the pretensions, this is the truth of his soul. Self-gain is greater than sacrifice. John explains that Judas is actually the treasurer for Jesus' merry band of disciples, and he's been stealing from the money bag. And now it all becomes clear. Now we understand what's going on. Judas is, in fact, utterly absorbed with himself. He is so self-absorbed, so self-centered, that he is entirely oblivious to Jesus' worth. And yet Mary is so self-forgetful that without shame and without embarrassment, she humbles, himself, she humbles herself before everyone and washes Jesus' feet with her hair. She sees and she values the glory of God in Jesus. And G Judas is so self-centered, he has no idea the infinite value of his rabbi. Instead, all he sees is one more money-grubbing opportunity gone to waste. One more opportunity to feed his own pleasures gone to waste. Judas is utterly blind. Pastor Kent Hughes commented that Judas is a profile of hell. But as despicable as Judas is, he is in fact a picture of all of us before Jesus touches our lives. On our own, apart from the saving work of Jesus, we are all entirely curved in on ourselves gratifying our own flesh and our own desires in whatever way we can. It is only when Jesus has come and touched our lives that we become his servants, his worshipers, joined in fellowship at his table. Jesus does not let this go. Notice how he rebukes Judas in verses 7 to 11. Judas said, Jesus said, leave her alone. So she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Verses 9 to 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not on, only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus' words here, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, these are a little difficult to understand. I don't think that Jesus is saying that Mary understands that Jesus is about to die. I don't think anybody understood that in one week's time, Jesus was going to be buried in the ground. But like Caiaphas, the high priest that we saw a couple of weeks ago, who prophesied beyond what he knew, more than he understood, I think that Mary's actions point to something more than she understood. Mary had kept this perfume until now, never having sold it, never having used it for other purposes. And her pouring it out on this day is pointing forward one week's time 
to the day of Jesus' burial. But notice the second thing that Jesus says here. He says, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this is astounding. If you ever say that, that would be the height of arrogance. But Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows what he is worth. And he receives the worship and the honor and the glory that we give him. This is one of those stories in Scripture that just lays your soul bare, isn't it? This story is a story of devotion and worship because Jesus is worthy. Do you believe that? Are you committed to that? Brothers and sisters, the time spent in worship, the money spent in worship, the resources spent gathering in Jesus' name and worshiping Jesus, it is worth it for your soul. Whatever the cost, Jesus is worthy. There is nothing more important for your soul than to worship God for his surpassing worth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that worship is greater than utility? Getting stuff done? The worship of God, which so forms our souls, is a humble worship. A worship that forgets about yourself, forgets about the people, forgets about what people might think of you. It's a worship that is focused on Jesus. It is focused on the surpassing worth of Jesus. The worship of God which forms our souls is a sacrificial kind of worship. It is regarding Jesus as worthy above all else, worth whatever the cost, whatever the personal cost. And Jesus says this kind of worship is beautiful. Is this how you worship? Do you see that Jesus is greater than acts of benevolence? Do you see that sacrifice for Jesus is greater than, than self-gain? You know, not all of our souls move in the same way. We all know people who are very passionate in life, don't we? Very excitable, very full of energy. They go whole hog into everything. Right? They live life to 100%. No filter, no governor holding them back, keeping them at 55 miles an hour, right? They're just going. Others of us are a little more cautious, a little more reserved, a little more cynical. We see the unrestrained dedication of some people to God and to the work of God. We see the extravagant devotion of some people to the worship of God, and we're tempted to respond with a certain amount of cynicism. So we have to ask, what is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth? Jesus is worthy. Worship of Jesus is greater than getting stuff done because worship forms your soul. Worship of Jesus is greater than giving to the poor because Jesus is more valuable. Sacrificial worship of Jesus is greater than self-gain and self-promotion because Jesus is worthy of it all. And we are but servants. 
We dare not value the things of this world as we value Jesus. If you see Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, then value him. Worship him as the priceless treasure that he is. Let us dedicate ourselves, our lives, our time, our resources to him. That's the kind of worship that is beautiful in his sight. That is the kind of worship that honors him. Father, this morning, what a glimpse of the worth of Christ we see in this text. Father, how easy it is for us to be tempted to